You know, Frank, I feel it is a tremendous honor to be recording with you. Thank you, Stevie. I feel, I feel the same. I, I'm very much into that tune you do with the Beatle kid. Uh, what's his name? Uh, the one that looks like a broad? His name's Paul McCartney, Frank. Yeah, 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 that's the dude. Uh, would you be so kind as to uh, run down that song for me, Stevie, please? Uh... Ebony and ivory live together in perfect Stevie, Stevie, uh, hold, hold, hold on, Stevie. Now, 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 something tells me that this is more than a song about playing the piano. Uh, Frank, it, it's about racial equality and the unity of all people. start off speed round part two with a topic that we covered a couple weeks ago john is asked to be let out of this one because he said he said all he has to say about broad street martin do you have any general comments on give my regards to broad street i enjoyed watching it at the cinema when it came out if that means anything to anybody did you have any special stories or what did you just pay your ticket and go and see the film john and i both had interesting stories about the first time we saw it many years ago. I went to go and watch the film, and I went in a little bit late, so I only caught the end section of the Frog Chorus, which was on before it, the Rupert story. So stayed through the whole of uh, Give My Regards to Broad Street, and then actually went to the toilet at the cinema and then made my way back into the cinema to watch the Rupert film and then Broad Street again. Did you like Rupert? I mean, you actually had a history with the character, and neither John or I were familiar with it, Rupert not really being an American thing. I remember a cartoon series in the 1970s in England. I watched that when I was really young, so I do remember that, which obviously wouldn't be in America, would it? And Well, no. It was, oddly enough, in America after the Rupert film, after Paul did his thing. I, you know, I think Paul actually owned the property. I don't know if he owned the cartoon or not. He certainly probably helped to get it back out in this country. As I told John in our Broad Street show, people looked at me funny for watching this weird little cartoon about a white bear. Yes, a white bear. But didn't Paul actually buy the rights in the 1960s? Because originally he was going to make the film in the 70s because he'd already started on the Rupert music for um, when he was working on Ram, etc. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, he did not own the rights when that cartoon was made. Okay, I didn't know that. I thought he'd already owned it. Or maybe he only owned a subset of the rights. Maybe he had bought motion picture rights and not TV rights. Maybe. I don't really know. I would have thought that you'd have the rights no matter what. Mind you saying that, there's the Marvel thing. At one point, they couldn't make certain films, but they could still make cartoons, so it's probably the same sort of thing. Spider-Man is still divided up between Sony and Disney. Either one can do live action, but Disney cannot do cartoons. Sony's the only one that can do cartoons. 
Okay. Nonetheless, so as to Broad Street itself, did you like it? My favorite bits of the film are the performances for the most part, especially I love the performances in the warehouse or whatever it is, you know, where he's got that line up there and they do no values, not such a bad boy and so bad as well. But for some reason, so bad didn't appear on the LP version, the vinyl version of the album. The thing about Broad Street is Paul had such great talent in front of the camera and he wasted almost all of it. Yeah, I think I've said this to people before. So he's there and he's got Dave Edmonds on guitar, Chris Spedding on guitar as well. When he does ballroom dancing, he's got John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin on bass and, of course, Ringo on drums as well. And when he does silly love songs, he's wasted a good band there because you've got two members of Toto in Jeff Beccaro and Steve Lukather and Louis Johnson from um, the Brothers Johnson. Even apart from the musicians, you got Brian Brown, who is a brilliant actor. You've got Sir Ralph Richardson, and you got Tracy Allman, who is completely wasted. Yes, but I do like the scene with uh, Ralph Richardson. I think that's an interesting sequence that's possibly quite telling, but in a vague way. Well, it's Paul writing about himself and his relationship with his dad. Yes. Why would this character be named Jim other than that fact? Absolutely. Yeah. But do you think it's even an acceptable film? I mean, it's, it's a good collection of music videos, although John won't even really give me that. Oh, right. Okay. I think it's a very good selection of music videos. The uh, ballroom dancing video is very good, albeit a bit cheesy, but very good. It doesn't make any sense either as a video or as a part of the movie. <laughs> Is it Paul filming a video? And if it's Paul filming a video, is it the character of Paul within the video looking surprised at what's going on? The real Paul's not that good an actor. No, but it, <laughs> they say back in the day that Paul was the worst of the Beatles with acting. He's the only one who couldn't even get his solo spots into either of the two films. He filmed a solo spot for help and he filmed a solo spot for hard days night. Neither one of them were good enough to get included. Paul with an actress and then the adventures of Paul on the floor. Give my regards to Broad Street. I sort of agree with a lot of people that have spoken about the film before where they've said what it was missing was somebody else to take the story and actually flesh it out and make it better than Paul's original idea. Well, first off, the whole business about Harry in the box just doesn't work. No. It's an excuse rather than anything actually cinematic. What separates Broad Street from Hard Day's Night is Paul's grandfather. Hard Day's Night doesn't have that much more of a plot than Broad Street does. No, but for some reason, a Hard Day's Night works... Because of the great writing, so you've got really good dialogue between them. The writer of it paid really good attention to get the nuances of each member of the band. And so they've been able to write accordingly. And then you have the grandfather who serves to stir the story up and keep things moving along. Which, in Broad Street, you got Paul, and that's it. That's right. But another thing with Broad Street is that I'm not really sure if the musicians have got any dialogue or if they're just responding naturally. There's that bit where Eric Stewart appears to do so bad and Ringo mentions Eric's new house. And I'm wondering, is that just a natural conversation between them both or has that been put into the script? Yeah, I don't think Paul wrote the dialogue. Ringo's very proud of getting the chance to woo Barbara on screen. And what I told John was maybe Paul should have written that as kind of the through line for the script. As is, you get five, maybe six minutes of it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's cute. That might well have worked. It's funny. I'm coming off as sounding like I hate the film. I don't hate the film. John doesn't like the film. Nope. I like the film much more than he does, but I readily acknowledge that it's not a good film. Me too. I mean, it's a shame, really, because, like you said, Brian Brown, Sir Ralph Richardson, Barbara Back herself, you know, is a really good accomplished actress. But then at that point in time, so was Ringo. He had top-notch talent, and he more or less wasted all of it. Yeah, really good actors there, but none of them actually had anything to actually work with. So what's missing? A plot is missing. Basically, anything for the actors to do is missing. And then the fact that, well, the whole film is a dream. And then you have dreams within dreams. 
Yes. The whole Eleanor's Dream sequence. And even before that, you get the bit where uh, he sees Harry being chased across the moors, Sherlock Holmes style. And then he dreams about Harry seeing the character who's played by the wrestler Giant Haystacks. He dreams of of a meeting between those two as well. Yeah. Although I like Big Bob. I like that actor. He's appropriate. Very. And very good at what he did as well. Although the film is sort of implying something weird, which is like, why is Paul so chummy with this bootlegger? That's true. If he's against bootlegging, you know, and you, why be friends with him? Not just why be friends with him. Big Bob makes the comment that, oh yeah, I saw Harry last night. He was hanging out with your lot. What club or bar is there around MPL that Big Bob is going to go to and that uh, Paul's employees from MPL are also going to go to? Yeah, it's another bit that doesn't really work so much i'm not even sure how they could have reworked that to make it work let's wrap this up so we can move on to other things and we can bring john back here do you think there's any way that they could have made broad street work other than paul just handing the script over to somebody else and saying write this oh and also what are your thoughts on the direction the production of the film i used to think it looked not great, other than the music video segments. But this last time through, I actually developed a greater appreciation for the way the film looks. It has a distinctive style when it's not in Dreamland. Absolutely. I think it does. And if it had not kept going into Dreamland, it might have been better, actually, thinking about it. Because even when he goes into the Eleanor's Dream section, it's almost cliche, the way that it looks and... I don't know. I'm, I might have done it in black and white, to be honest. That's an idea. I guess the other thing I'd say is Broad Street's not nearly as funny as it should have been. Paul knows he's not a dramatic actor. If you're going to do that, and especially with Tracy Ullman there, make it a good comedy. Yes. But then again, I mean, saying that, Tracy Ullman, such a great all-round actress who can do drama as well, because I think I've seen her in dramas as well. Yeah, she was on the last season of Curb Your Enthusiasm and played a really great role there. Yeah, she's apparently very big in America, is she? She has since gotten much bigger. I mean, at the time of Broad Street, she was more or less unknown here, but she got her series shortly thereafter, and, well, that's where The Simpsons came from. Absolutely, yeah. Just these little interstitial shorts on the Tracy Ullman show. Yeah, I've got those on the DVD set from back in the day of um, the first season of Simpsons. So you have no suggestions for Paul improving the film other than hand it over to a professional? I would say hand it over to a professional or... uh, I don't know. If you're going for the humorous side, I mean, there are certain people that he could have gone to. I mean, he was friends with people like, you know, Spike Milligan and even some of the Pythons were friends of his as well as George's. You know, there's people who could have helped him to have honed it and made it a better script for sure. And funnier. I think he just didn't know what he wanted. At least to me, the biggest fault with the film is that the whole thing is a dream. Starting the film off with him in the back of the car, going off into this daydream, it automatically sort of tells you, oh, well, the rest of this film just doesn't matter. Yep. We've all been told when we were kids at school that when we wrote short stories for lessons, do not make it in a, that it's all a dream. Well, and especially here in the States, that's coming off of Dallas, and that was a punchline in and of itself. And suddenly, I'll be Ewing in the shower, yes. Well, there you go, you see. We, we found out the secret. Paul was a secret uh, watcher of uh, Dallas. Well, George actually was a watcher of Dallas. Okay. Michael Palin, in his book, says that you knew never to call George when Dallas was on. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> he'd pick up the phone, watching TV, and he'd put it right back down. Right. Okay. (laughs) Let's move on to our next topic. Beatles Ballad. This was an album which came out in 1980 in the UK. It was released in Canada and Mexico, but we didn't get it in the States. No, we didn't. But I think it's actually a good idea. I remember Ken Michaels from Talk More Talk and Things We Said Today from that. He said before that he likes these sets where it's like an introduction for new audience and new fans. And it's sort of an interesting idea to go to have an album about this, an album about that, and an album made up of this stuff. Yeah. And you made me laugh, John, by the way, when we were doing the chat thing and the suggestions that you made for other alternatives. And these sets that could be made based on certain yeah, styles. You know, I think that a good album could be made out of John's rock and roll 
contributions, both to the Beatles, if you wanted, but on his own. He really created some really great rock. And McCartney, of course, has written some beautiful ballad-type songs, you know, uh, Little Willow and Calico Skies and put together kind of a ballads thing. And George, I called it Hari's Krishna, you know, Be Here Now and music aimed in that direction and to gather it together. Well, I think it's a waste that there isn't a Paul McCartney ballads compilation called Silly Love Songs. Right. Well, except some it's of them are really aren't silly. I mean, some of them are no. quite beautiful, I think. But yeah, I, I get your drift. Well, they're not silly at all. You know, I think an album could be made of Paul's interest in what I would call Fred Astaire show music. You know, he has this ability to turn that stuff out and a whole album could be made out of it. His manager, Scott Roger, I'm surprised he hasn't thought about this because we're going to get onto this a bit later. But the thing with Paul if you did sets based on different things with him, it could actually put Paul over in a better light than he is because you could have an album called Experiments in Sound because he has experimented over the years. Oh, for and, sure. and even rock songs, you could do a set of rock songs and collaborations because Paul's seen in a certain light by some people. This would bring out the certain areas that people don't see so much. Where he, where he really excels. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. he's always wanted to release Paul McCartney Goes Too Far. <laughs> right. But, you know, I was thinking of a song, Gotta Sing, Gotta Dance, that he wrote for Twitter. Yes. You know, that's not, you don't find that around. That with You Gave Me the Answer and Baby's Request. There, yes. There's a, there's a yeah. whole bunch of music that just goes together thematically that would set him in a whole different light. It's like, look, this is what he does this this you know in this genre and then this is what he does in this genre he seems to have a need to prove that he can do it all in every album exactly rather than emotionally gather this stuff together and 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 put it out but essentially that's pushing on what they were doing with the beatles as well wasn't it because they'd always make albums up of songs that were all different to each other and he's basically carrying that on in his own career. I don't know that it serves him all the time. I think he could put out albums that just have more of an emotional impact because he's not trying to replace John in his band. That's true. Going back to the Beatles, you could do this with the Beatles because they've got rock numbers. They've got, as we know, ballads, and they've done the love song set and all these other sets that they could do. I mean, they could probably do a better compilation album of rock and roll songs. The rock and roll album got a lot of slag at the time, but really when you look at it, it's probably the best one put together because it really is their rock and roll stuff. Well, except for the cover. That's got nothing to do with the choosing of the record. Somebody just kind of went nuts and put that cover on there. But, you know, some of the other albums, like the one we were talking about, the Beatle Ballads, there are songs in there that are like, do you want to know a secret? I mean, it is a ballad, but they didn't do it as one. And Nowhere Man could be a yes. kind of a folk ballad, but they didn't do it as one. Yes. Or Norwegian Wood. All My Loving is a country song. It's not a ballad. Yeah, yes. Yes, the Beatles do country. Oh, absolutely. What goes on? But I'm just saying you, you could do a better Beatles ballad album than what was put out. They left off This Boy and Because and Yes It Is. Some great ballads i mean even here comes the sun is not really a ballad no No. (laughs) neither is blackbird really i can see that as a folk ballad an old style thing love songs is worse she's leaving home is not a love song no even it's only love which they include is it's so hard loving you (laughs) girl is not a love song ah now there's a story behind that absolutely so norwegian wood is has a story but it's not a love song. Norwegian Wood was on the ballads album in every country except for South Korea, where they replaced it with Girl, because Norwegian Wood was banned in South Korea. Because you can't say the word Norwegian? I think it's the implication of, of him going back to the woman's house, and it's probably that part of it, I would have guessed. Well, I mean, the other thing about that is somebody inside of Capitol had the very smart idea oh, we're going to put out a single from this album and we're going to put two girl songs together. That's probably the real reason that it ended up on the disc. 
And they actually printed up some picture sleeves and pressed up some copies of this single, although it's very rare these days. The promo copies are all that exist. What single is that? Girl, and you're going to lose that girl. Wow. That's a quite A and a B. I've always hated what they did to the photos on the cover. The leather and the gold was kind of nice. Yeah, it seemed classy, didn't it? Now, this, this so, was not a, a, an album in the UK, was it? Which of these compilation albums did you guys get? We tend to think of them as capital-oriented. And there were, what, five or six of them after Red and Blue? It was Rock and Roll, which I know you did get, then Love Songs, then Real, Real music, music, and then 20 Greatest Hits. That was kind of it. There wasn't anything else right. Yeah. I, th- I think we got all of those over here. I seem to remember seeing them in the record shops. Really? As actual official releases? I'm not sure. Possibly an import for a couple of those. Rock and roll music was definitely uh, over here, but yeah. on a very bad pressing. <laughs> cool. Because it was done by a cheap record company, one of those that sells them for, in America, to call it under $5, one of those sort of records. The same subsidiary of EMI, which ended up with blast from your past and the other cover of george harrison's greatest the one that had the white album photo with sort of bad wallpaper behind it that's it that's the one mfp is the call MFP, I think. Music yep. yeah yep. but not for good sound <laughs> i was surprised with the, the beetle ballads that it was seven weeks at number one in Australia. In the UK, it only ever got to number 17. They weren't doing very well in the UK during the late 70s, the Beatles. Sort of left over from the clash, the whole phony Beatlemania thing. Yeah, which was misunderstood anyway. I remember that from Mick Jones explaining that people misunderstood what they're on about with that, really. But yeah. Now, the cover, that, that's the aborted White Album cover, the Doll's House cover. It's an odd cover. I'm glad they picked the cover that they did for the White Album, if that was the choice. Yeah, that was when the record was still called A Doll's House. Right. I just get the feeling that if they would have come out as The Doll's House with that cover, we'd be going, boy, what a great album that was. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's kind of like, this is the art they presented, and we liked it. And I think if they would have presented that, it would have just been part of the canon and we'd like it yeah they would have said it was retro or very of the time yeah or french (laughs) i don't know i mean the thing it reminds me most of is the original compilation album the oldies but goldies record from 66 cover wise you know just just an art cover because the beatles never really did any other art covers I mean, your white album was questionably an art cover, but it's a plain white cover. Revolver's kind of an art cover. Eh, kind of, sort of, I guess. It's different in that it's a work of art based around a series of photographs. Right, and certainly this cover, whatever we want to call it, is of the Beatles. Dare I say by a lesser artist than Klaus. <laughs> right. Uh, they reuse a lot of this art in the illustrated lyrics books. You know, I think there were a couple of other pieces. It was it was a triptych or something going back to the Witcher cover. Well, I think that it was going to be a large album and therefore needed several pieces. So I've seen several pieces of it. We play the what if game. If they had split the white album into two separate <laughs> albums, would this have ended up as a cover of one of them? It probably would have, actually. You know, if it had been the Dolls album and Beatles 68 to pick just an arbitrary name for the second half of the White Album. Or would they have tried to have still linked them together, having similar artwork to each other, and then released them on the same day? That's a what if. Yeah. I think we have no answer to that. Yeah, but it sounds pretty Apple-like. <laughs> Let's release them on the same day, but not the same album, but they're linked And let's have them in a brown paper bag so you don't know which one you're buying. (laughs) Shut up, John. (laughs) That's right. One copy out of every hundred is two virgins. That's it. The Beatles invented the special chase. And you remember at the time that because of the two virgins thing, the press got it all mixed up because there was talk that that was the white album. And it was white because... There was a picture involved. Then the whole McCartney picture on the poster was like, is this it? So it was all messed up because they were kind of close together. They're missing a trick, really, because what they could have done in the what if thing, they could have done the brown paper bag thing, really. They could have done that. And then for every so many 
So out of every, say, 50 copies, you might be the one person out of those 50 that actually gets a cover as opposed to a white cover. And it would be that cover that we're talking about. Yes. There you go. I think we've used up all the artwork, so let's go forward with it. You were saying that you thought it was weird how they divvied up the songs on ballads. You know, on ballads, there's 13 McCartney tunes. And there's two Harrison tunes. That's a very small representation of John in this. And you think, well, you know, John was not the ballad guy, but they left off, yes, it is, and this boy, and because, and in my life. So I just thought it was a weird selection of tunes. Well, in my again, life especially. Again, U.S. Revolver style. Although the, we had nothing to do with creating this song lineup. <laughs> we didn't even get it released here. No. And then you have to question, with those songs being left off, did we really need a version of Till There Was You? But haven't they actually done better cover versions of ballads as well than that? Maybe. I, I'll agree Maybe. with that. You know, uh Again, that would have been a perfect opportunity to release some of the stuff from the BBC, which they had had by 1980. They missed so many chances with these things. So with the Love Songs album, the Ballads album, and the Rock and Roll albums, I mean, they could have easily gone into the uh, tapes and got something that was never heard before, as opposed to putting making albums up of already existing material. They could do that for the most part, but then they could have pulled something from the archive that nobody had heard like from the the BBC sessions, and put three of those on there with 13 songs that we've already got. be interesting to know the behind-the-scenes aspects of men in suits who look at record sales and what albums did well, what albums didn't do well, and when did they come to recognize the audience, which is a pretty incredible audience. We're talking 50 years later, and we're still going, it's not enough. <laughs> we still want the whole 55 hours of get back. Exactly. And so, you know, that had to have been a dawning at some point that there's this big audience that wants this stuff. Because up until this time, what audience were they shooting for? Obviously, want to sell as many records as they can, but some of the choices are interesting. They could have made it for a larger audience, essentially. So you would pick up the transitory audience with the songs that are already played on the radio, but you put on, say, three songs that haven't been released before. You get those people who are already fans of the band because they'll buy it for those three songs that nobody's ever heard before. Well, I mean, that's what Sessions was supposed to be at least in part here's something new for you yes i I agree with that i think we accept the quality of sound on things like the bbc stuff because there's been years of going oh there's this other thing but those releases don't sound like beetle releases i mean george martin never got a hold of those things so they didn't really sound like the beatles until for that audience or the general audience until some years later well and even when we finally got them there are a lot of people who look at the bbc recordings and it's like oh well that's just them doing cover songs yeah and your point is yeah that's not what we want to hear. How did the BBC recordings go over in Britain? I think they did really well. Weren't both of them uh, number one albums in the UK? That, I don't know. <laughs> That's why we're asking you. <laughs> I don't know without do- going onto the old internet right. while we're talking. Because the, the BBC experience was so different for British fans than American fans hearing it in real time was a big difference. We didn't hear them until the seventies and they were crappy versions. Yeah. It wasn't until the mid eighties that we actually really started to get solid versions of a lot of the stuff. So the BBC experience was very different for the two countries. That's interesting. So the first release live at the BBC that actually did hit number one in the UK, number three in the U S and the second one, they switched around. So the UK got number 12. and Well, the US, it depends. The Billboard 200, it got number seven, but it was number one on the Rock Albums chart. Well, we, we won't talk about the charts. The, the charts have become a mess. The whole sound scan era, I would say, is when the charts started to become 
what does this mean? Well, definitely for the second set, yes, because that we were well into that era then. From Apple's perspective, the thing about Live at the BBC was like, okay, we need to do a proof of concept because anthology is coming. We need to know how should we package this stuff and what's the best way to do things. And so the baby they threw out there was Live at the BBC. We started getting radio specials in the mid-80s of the Beebs Lost Beatles tapes. And that's when I would say the wider audience really started to learn about this treasure trove of BBC material. The wider audience did, although they were on bootlegs in the late 70s. And as I said, they were always really crappy. The interest was there'd be songs that we hadn't heard, Clarabella and stuff like that. Or if we had sometimes versions of songs, but sung by somebody that wasn't the singer that we're used to. Well, John singing Matchbox. As opposed to Ringo. Yep. Anything else on this before we move on? Beatle ballads are done. Beatle ballads, compilations, you know, that, that sort of thing. What the difference is between the 70s and 80s records, because it was really at sessions that Apple kind of took charge and said, we're going to be in charge of how this thing is run. The legal battles ended up in Apple's favor, and they were able to really control global releases of the product. Right. That's when the process became Apple's and when, at that time, Paul George and Ringo had a hand in what would be coming out everywhere across the globe. Although they didn't get it exactly right. I mean, you know, you still had issues like the CD release of the Red Album being slightly different between the UK and here. Y- yes. I don't get how that happened. Because, I mean, were they the same when they came out originally in the 70s? Was the vinyl the same everywhere? No, it was not. They compiled it from their own masters. So there was a separate compilation done in the UK and a separate one done here by Capital. So that's how come we got the James Bond theme at the beginning of it. James Bond theme? There's an opening to help that is the James Bond opening for what, Goldfinger? No, I wasn't aware of that. Like, this is new to me. New to me. It's yes. the way American fans heard that, except for on the single. But that's the way you heard help. Was it started up with this? And then right into the right. And then help. Yeah. So yeah. I need to look that up now and listen to that. Are all those Dave Dexter mixes? No, they weren't, which, like I say, is the weird thing. We got the proper mixes, but we still got the James Bond intro to help on the Red album because someone thought, oh, well, that's not right. And Monty Norman's made no money from it whatsoever. (laughs) What do we have next on the agenda here? Uh, This is Martin's subject. You bring it up. I've just thought that the popularity of George has grown since his passing where I've seen a lot more people come out and say that their favorite Beatle or ex Beatle solo career is George's. And I just find it fascinating that for so many years he was at a certain level and now he's at a certain higher level. And I'm wondering why that could be other than the obvious, you know, oh well he passed away and suddenly his music's out there. Yeah. Well, that's what happens with saints, you know, you die and then your cult grows. It happened to John a little bit, but I would say John's reputation is, a, I won't quite say it's on the wane, but I would say it's leveled out a little bit. You know, there was a good, oh, up until 2005, 2010, there really was this St. John Lennon thing. And Yoko has tried to kind of keep that alive. But it seems that we're back into the reality of who and what John Lennon was rather than this saintly figure up there spending all his time preaching about peace. I mean, he did, 
but that's not the only thing he did. Do you think that because there were so many gaps or there were such long gaps between releases that he wasn't quite as noticed as Paul was during that time? And even Ringo was releasing more product to a degree as well. And in the early 70s, you know, John through to a certain time was releasing very regular material and I always thought that George was more of a perfectionist or somebody that took a long time with his material. And do you think that affected how he was viewed? I think his reputation really started to climb with Cloud Nine. You know, yeah. Cloud Nine, the Wilburys brainwashed the Japan tour. Well, I mean, brainwash was obviously posthumous, but, you know, all of those were really strong, really pretty popular albums, which increased the presence of George Harrison in the public view. I also think that George existed for a time in the internet world. John never did. And so there's a lot of different kinds of stuff about Harrison out than there is about John. And I think his self-deprecating humor, I mean, there's just a lot of stuff out there that endears you to him. And it could be that we're living in a much more cynical age than we were even 20 years ago. You know, George is the <laughs> Beatle for today. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a good point. I, th- I think his material definitely suits the times, that's for sure, because it's got that almost questioning quality to it in George's lyrics. Although that doesn't answer the question, why is Here Comes the Sun the most streamed Beatles song by a country mile. Not quite, but almost double the next highest streamed Beatles song. Well, it's light and airy and happy and easy on the ear. Definitely that, yes. But, I mean, you know, it's not something. It's uh, it's Here Comes the Sun. And, and, you know, John has certainly had his share of that. Or, or Good Day Sunshine, you know, there there's another song. Good Day Sunshine is not number two. Good Day Sunshine is just kind of there in the middle somewhere. You're making me wonder what's number two now. <laughs> the new number two. You were thinking the same thing, weren't you, John? Yes. <laughs> Although Here Comes the Sun is nowhere near four or five seconds. That is the absolute most streamed Beatles-related song. Now that is a surprise. What is? Four or five seconds. One of the songs he wrote with Kanye. Ah, yes. I mean, it's not that surprising that a song of the streaming era with a streaming artist is going to be streamed much more than... A Beatles song. That is the music that belongs to the kids who are doing most of the streaming. And we're all old farts and like physical media still. Going on a very quick tangent with that, if I was to be the sort of questioning person, that's a very good strategy for Paul to use to get a hit single by having Kanye West and Rihanna on a song with you when they are two of the biggest stars at that point? Well, I mean, you know, why do you think he played it in concert for all those years? You know, he's just dropped it. He did it for like eight or nine years in concert. He was probably hoping that Rihanna might jump on a plane and suddenly turn up and join him. Paul McCartney singing four or five seconds from Wilding. That's just not quite right. It's not bad. It's just not quite right to me. Yeah, that weirded me out when I heard him doing that live when I saw him at Birmingham. I thought, that's just odd. But it fit in with Temporary Secretary. My favourite song of the night. <laughs> Don't go jumping what? Please okay, uh, Sorry. <laughs> so to answer your question, uh, following Here Comes the Sun, it's come together, hey Jude, and let it be. So, I mean, you know. Those you would kind of expect. But like you're hinting at, I mean, uh, Here Comes the Sun, great song, but you would have thought that something being the great song that it is, that that would have been ahead of that in terms of Harrison songs. Well, I guess, but you know, what people stream for is not necessarily a slow ballad like that. Yes. And interestingly enough, there are no other George songs in the top ten. The rest of the top ten is Twist and Shout, Blackbird, Want to hold your hand in my life? She loves you and help. That's a good list. But I can see Frank Sinatra turning in his grave at, at the greatest love song ever written, not being number one. <laughs> oh, well, Frank was drunk. <laughs> I think George's rep started to be on the rise post Cloud Nine. Yeah, I think Traveling Wilburys was pretty huge yeah. for him. 
I think that era for him, the Cloud Nine, then the Travelling Mulberries, up to the Live in Japan, I think that was probably one of his better periods post the All Things Must Pass and the early 70s. That was probably his best period. Well, after Concert for Bangladesh, all the way through to Gone Tropo, George had his ups and his downs during that era. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But he was going through some turmoil around that period. So well, this is true. Yeah. Right. And at the end of his life, he, his personal story is somewhat tragic, being attacked in his home. Yeah. That following John's assassination, it just seemed like, oh my gosh, you know, that these people who had been adored were being cut down by wackos. I don't know whether Olivia actually made much difference to the public perception of George Harrison. I mean, you know, you look at the Beatles spouses, Linda was probably a negative and then she became a positive. Yeah. You know, there, there was a lot of what the hell is she doing up there on stage with Paul? Yoko was probably a negative who became a neutral. And Barabak was a positive. Yep, the Bond girl. Maureen was probably a neutral. No one ever really knew outside of the Beatle people, Ringo's girlfriend uh, in between there. And as far as George, no one I think really noticed Patty. Uh, would you say she was a neutral? I mean, although it did bring up the specter of she left me for my best friend, and that was a media story. But I don't know if it was necessarily a negative. It, it right. was an interesting media story, that's for sure. That's happened, and then they've remained best friends ever since. There was a period where they weren't the best of friends. I don't think they were ever actually separated, but, I mean, they didn't hang out together for a while there. They sort of came back together in the latter 70s, really when Clapper actually married Patty. Yes, there's another what if, you know, because if John had been around and all that, but should we leave that? Well, John was around. We still don't know what happened there. John had his green card. He very well could have gone. John claims he never received an invitation. They claim they sent him one. Yeah, I got it mixed up for Ringo's wedding. Sorry. Who knows what the real story of that is? Right. Maybe some disagreements between John and Eric, perhaps. I don't know. It's George who would have the disagreements with Eric, not just because of uh, Patty, but because of the whole troubles with Concert for Bangladesh that Eric caused. John and Eric, they hung out together, or at least they were together when they could be together. Yeah. So it's kind of weird. So going back to the subject then at hand of George's, the way that he's been viewed and how it seems to have changed, do you suggest then that it is just basically based around the fact that people have looked at his career more because of his passing and they've just taken more attention of it. I would say it's because George is not around to release more religious albums or religious songs. A lot of people just weren't real big fans of that. And so, you know, he'd do something popular and that the public would like, and then he'd go off and do a six-minute chant. And it's like, okay, well, all right. George kind of didn't allow himself to be viewed in that manner, and maybe he didn't want to be viewed in that manner. Another interesting one is Paul's playing George's songs, as that actually helped the estate of George Harrison as well. Perhaps. I'm just thinking, uh, you know, the overarching story is that the fans are happy when the perception is the Beatle family is happy. And I think the get back thing has you know with all the kids coming together and we love each other and oh my gosh i think the view of george right now has really benefited from the get back release because i think people begin to understand what he was laboring under and see his humor and his contribution and that certainly has helped but i think you know what you were talking about is it started much earlier and luckily in his lifetime you know i think the traveling wilburys thing has been huge absolutely well speaking of the wilburys uh to take another tangent a lot of people have been saying that what would a mccartney wilburys look like or 
would he even allow himself to do such a thing? It's a good question. We talk about him letting Bruce up there to do Glory Days as part of the McCartney show. Maybe he's ready to let other top-notch professionals up there on stage with him. Not as a replacement for his band, but as a side project. To change the question slightly, would Paul be open to doing that, where it's him and other people and they take turns, or is he too much into the pushing of himself in concert? The question is why he does it, and I don't think he does it for the same reasons that Ringo does and doesn't have to do what Ringo does. If Ringo wanted, he probably could put together a show that is primarily his material and probably get a band behind him. But he doesn't do that because he wants a different kind of show. McCartney can do five hours of his own material. He doesn't need to bring on people. I don't think he's touring just to tour. He's touring his stuff. Well, I mean, the question is, is Paul going to be physically able to continue that pace? Paul and Ringo have consistently said they haven't thought of touring together, but maybe they really seriously should. I mean, Ringo would get more money out of a Paul and Ringo tour, and neither one of them would have to work as hard as they do on their own separate shows. I think it will be an interesting thing for Paul as a performer to look into it. I don't think that he ever would look into it, but I think it'd be interesting for Paul that way because it would relax his voice at certain moments. When he came back after the lockdown, his voice seemed to have been a lot better. And it's like the relaxing of the performance and the touring has done wonders for his voice and perhaps a tour that was more shared between, for want of another word, supergroup and sharing the responsibilities more would actually be better for that. And also, I'll say it here, he's an incredible musician, so he would be able to pull it off to be that musician in the background and probably offering a bit of backing vocal as well. Well, I mean, especially since you consider, you know, John says that he's out there touring because he wants to tour his new stuff. He didn't play any of his new stuff. He dropped the one song from McCartney 3 halfway through the U.S. tour. Let Him In replaced Women and Wives, and that was the way it was for the rest of the run, all the way through Glastonbury. So I'm not sure why Paul tours, other than that he wants to, and he enjoys it. I still don't know why Paul hasn't done Find My Way as part of the life set. He wants the adrenaline and the reception of Hey Jude or all of those Beatles songs that he pulls out. Although it's funny, the one even mild gripe is, why isn't Paul playing all of these Beatles songs? He's playing too many wing songs. It's like, no, no, that's not the case. We can look at the the latest McCartney 3 album and pick songs off there, you know, like I've already mentioned, you know, Find My Way, Sliding, that would work live. And there's all sorts of songs that would work live from his latest album, but he doesn't seem to want to be touching them. And I don't know why. No, because the other point to it is, it's the material that is closest to in years. So he should be able to pull that off better than everything else in the set. True. Yeah, no, his voice is clearly closest to what's on the record on the newer material. And, you know, maybe it's he doesn't want to make that admission. Yes, that's true. That's part two of Speed Round here. A couple more random topics for y'all. Ho- hope y'all enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> Martin, you're in the middle of your season of Pods Like Us. I sort of am, yes, yes. I'm in the middle of recording them and just start putting out the latest season, yep. We'll be looking for that. You you just did a show about uh, the Rocky films. Uh, the first Creed film, if you haven't seen it, go see it. Uh, it's got Great lots film. of nice Liverpool scenery in there. It has, yep. And a good performance by Mr. Stallone in Creed. Cool. And otherwise, we will be back soon. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what our schedule's like right now. I'll Thanks, see you for everybody. the next part of my tour of the show. There you go. Well, good talking to you. Okay, talk to you soon. Bye. 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 Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. 
please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at when they was fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by J. Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Frank was drunk. <laughs> I've never been to one of his parties. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. <laughs> We've lost Ed. Sorry. Right. We had the greatest time. Whoever would have guessed that Paul would write a song about, well, he didn't write a song about Sammy Davis Jr. He, he would mention mm-hmm. Sammy Davis Jr. in a song. Yeah. Why wouldn't you mention, you know, a uh, behemoth of the entertainment world? Reminds me of Ringo on SNL. With Billy Crystal and something that no one would ever get away with today. Billy Crystal as Sammy Davis Jr. It's like, that's never going to get shown again. (laughs) There is a video of somebody on a talent show doing Ebony and Ivory with one side of their face black and the other side white. Not the best thing or the most PC. SNL also did a, speaking of Frank, they did a what if Ebony and Ivory were Frank and Paul. And I remember that as actually being really funny. That was Joe Piscopo as Frank Sinatra, telling you how far back this was. Yeah, but it wasn't with Paul. It was with... uh, It wasn't with Paul. No, you're right. It was him with... Stevie Wonder. You are black and I am white. Right. You can't see and I have sight. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Although I don't remember who was playing Stevie Wonder. It was, was it like, too late to be Eddie Murphy? I, it may have been uh, Eddie Murphy. Yeah, because Piscopo and Murphy were together for for their their time on SNL. Yeah. Ebony and Ivory. Ebony. Hey, Stevie, what the hell are we beating around the bush for? This is 1982. Let's get right to the point, huh? Here, take it from the tops. We're swing it, Stevie. With a bounce, baby. black i am white life's son eskimo pie let's take a bite that was groovy thinking lincoln when you set them free we all know cats are the same main to mexico good bad guys and chicks I am dark and you are light. You are blind as a bat and I have sight. Side by side you are my amigo. Negro, let's not fight. Ebony and good. ivory good, just living in perfect harmony. We're talking salt and pepper. Sandy and Dean. Stevie and me are peachy king. You are white, you are black, and uh, who cares? Who cares, baby? I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals. But they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. 